Hi, my name is Rich Nadwarney, and welcome to Innovation Explorers, Hello Futures podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. Each episode, we talk with people on the front lines of innovation and change work as they share their unique perspectives on some of the most common issues we face. This podcast is primarily for those of you working in large and mid-sized organizations who want to get your change and innovation initiatives moving faster, better, and with more internal alignment. In this episode, we're speaking with John Mortimer, who works with public sector organizations in the UK and Sweden to help them reinvent their work and redesign their systems. We talk with John about why it feels like it's so difficult to innovate in public organizations and the impact that the current paradigm of new public management has on inhibiting change and improvement. So welcome, John Mortimer. It's really nice and fun to have you on the Innovation Explorers podcast. Well, thank you. It's um, I love talking about this kind of stuff. So uh, I'm really I'm really looking forward to this. So, John, uh, listeners in Sweden may know you from work you do in the public sector here. You you collaborate with Svid, the the Swedish Design Institute. Uh, you do workshops. Your focus is all about change and innovation in the public sector. You talk a lot about uh, systems design and service design, and. One of the things I really just wanted to kind of start this conversation with is why do you think it's so hard for the public sector to innovate? Or at least it feels like it's hard to innovate in the public sector. Is it? What, what, what's your take on this? You've worked, with, you've worked on this for 18 years. Oh, gosh. Is it difficult? It, it is difficult. And I, I can't pretend that it's easy. It's difficult because of the barriers that we put in front of ourselves when we try to innovate. So it's our fault, basically. When I say our fault, it's people in the system that don't know that they're doing that. So in the public sector, for instance, we have beliefs about what we can change and what we can't change. And it's those beliefs that get in the way. So for instance, we are we very often come up against what people think are risky. We come up against what people think that we should be behaving, how we should be behaving. And those things will keep us from innovation. And there's a, there's a quote that was uh, from the 1960s by someone called Edwards Deming. And he says, 95% of the outcome of an organization is down to the system and not the people. And that's what interests me is let's look at the system and find out why it is so difficult to change. So that's one of the differences between me and perhaps other people is that I will not just do the change, but I will go beyond that and look at why the system is not changing. And I think that we have to do that first before we can actually help the system to change. Interesting. You rem- it reminds me a lot of, uh, I don't know whether you've read Dave Gray's book on liminal thinking, of all these things that are impacting the way that we act, and we're not even aware of why, you know, that they're impacting us or actually why we do this. It's just like, this is the way we've already always done things. Yes. Uh, so, so you like systems. So, so let's 
let's dive right into that because one of the things I, I love about the your writing and, and posts on LinkedIn is you're not really afraid to kind of take on this new public management paradigm that we've all been kind of we've fallen into. Thank you, uh, American consultants. Um, but the new public management, it's kind of taken over the public sector, especially in Sweden, probably in England, too. And, you know, uh, and so I'm wondering uh, for those who are listening who are maybe not so aware of what this is and how it came about and that we're actually in this paradigm. What what is this new public management and why are we in it and and why is it not working for us? Well, very interestingly, um, three weeks ago, I interviewed someone who was at the heart of the development of new public management. So new public management is a way of designing the public sector that has come from one person. And that person was Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in the 1980s. So she woke up one day and she thought to herself, the public sector in England is not working very well. We don't know where the money is being spent. And I think that we can use what is going on in the private sector to help redesign the public sector. So she started that initiative and she came up with some very key concepts, which basically meant that instead of uh, integrated working, we will have individual services. We will split those services up so that actually we can focus on the different elements. So you have doctors, which are now separated from nurses, which are separated from other people in the health service. We will give them certain amounts of money each so that they can look at themselves like a business. So each one of those areas had to behave like a business. And if you wanted to do something, you had to prove that the financial value would cover the amount of cost that you would have to spend. So this came from what was popular at the time in the 1980s in the private sector. And in a nutshell, that's what happened. Bizarrely enough, that's still what we have today. And it was exported to many different countries. They thought this is great. We want to make the public sector more efficient. And this is the way to do it, because at the moment, it's all too complex. We don't understand it. So we need to have a way of being able to understand it. And then you've got ministers in the government who can basically look at a set of measures in front of them and they can pull different levers to change the amount of money and other things so that parts of the public sector that aren't working very well can actually work better. So in a nutshell, that's my definition of what new public management is. So it sounds like the public sector got trapped in this, in this, you know, time it got trapped in you know the the time warp of the eight, eight, 1980s business and what's interesting is you know over the past 40 years the businesses themselves have realized that it doesn't actually work for them because they get these internal groups competing and actually stopping innovation there's a great case study on Nokia of why that exact thing didn't work and yet here we are 2023 and we're still in this system. Why, why, does the, why do politicians and the public service still believe that this system is going to work for us when we've seen actually evidence of the opposite? Ah, 
Well, I tell you what, I've, I've, I've thought about many things, but I've never understood the answer to the question that you've just raised. The only answer I can perhaps believe is that the courage and effort that is needed to now fundamentally shift the basic principles of how we believe the public sector should be run would need as big a shift that has happened in the 1980s. And I don't know whether, certainly in, in the UK, politicians at the moment are not focused in that area. They are elected for a few years. They want to get votes. Uh, what they don't want to do is upset the whole of the public sector in the way that happened in the 1980s. That's what I believe. But to answer your question truly, I think that's a very, very good question. And I would love that that question became a topic of conversation within a country. And one of the reasons that I've been working with Sweden is that I found that countries like Sweden are more open to those types of questions and discussions than they are in this country. Interesting. I mean, there are only 10 and a half million people here. So, so the scale might be one of the reasons. I, I, I lived and come from Vermont in the United States, very small. I think we have like less than 700,000 people and it's still, we still can't get everything right. And one of the, the smarter people in, in the state keeps saying, no, 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 we, we should be able to do this because it's such a small scale. We don't have, it's not like the UK where it's huge and complex. Mike Bracken was talking a little bit about that, but you also, you wrote, uh, as soon as we place a, and a new public management design over complexity, we get a service that is unable to absorb that variety that is inherent in the system, right? These rigid things. And so I'm kind of wondering, we're not really having this discussion, but what do you think, what, from your experience, what should we be replacing this with? You know what? There's been a lot of prototypes, little bits of working in different parts of the public sector that have tried to pull away from new public management. And the evidence is there. So when you say, what do we replace it with? I think my, my answer to that question would be, firstly, let's go and actually see other ways of working that currently exist. Let's not sit around a table and start theorizing about what it should be, which is where we started from in that was one of the big problems of new public management but let's actually understand how a new way of working should be designed and we know how to do that for instance in the netherlands there's something called birtsorg which is a way of nurses working very differently now that's an example that's not come from new public management now we could look at that we could look at the principles behind it we could look at the way of working and we can understand how they developed and we can use exactly the same design approach in all the other parts of the public sector. So this idea of using I, I, one of the, the reasons I think that this is so interesting, right? There is a design approach to do this. And some yes. of it is, is, you know, taking inspiration from others and adapting it to our, our various uh, uh, needs. We know how to do that and not thinking that we have to think of things all by ourselves. We know how to do that. I think also one of the things that's interesting and, and maybe a little threatening in some way is this idea of we can't sit around in meeting rooms mm -hmm. 
and go round and round and figure our way out of that. We know that that doesn't work, but it's it's kind of the most comfortable practice we have, especially in Sweden. Consensus driven. I'm sure it's the same in the UK. We see it in the US, and we know how to do that too. But but it gets to something else that you're talking about, and that's talking about the the way we work, right? Someone uh, McKinsey said in the '90s, you know, culture is how things get done here. And I think what you've you mentioned now is that the way things get done has been has been we've been conditioned by these practices that were put in place by the system, and and those are and there are barriers that come up. So you've written, for example, bear. Right? It's about allowing, for example, staff to focus on the real needs of the person that needs help without the baggage that the current system imposes on us. You wrote that managers have focus on the effectiveness, not the efficiency of the service. And we work to a set of principles, not a set of fixed rules. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how, how you kind of came to that. Well, that's interesting because it's not, it's not just at a superficial level. That affects it. That affects people in the public sector very deeply. So let me give you an example. When someone in the community contacts the public sector and says, I need help, I may be elderly, uh, I may be infirm, but actually I need help in my home. Uh, I'm having difficulties washing or I'm having difficulties cooking. What happens is that someone will come out or someone will do an assessment, usually on the telephone. So we will assess that person. So I had a group of people, about seven people, and we were going to do a, a new way of working. So I had to ask them to put their assessments aside and go and visit people in their houses and understand that person and their needs. The, <laughs> I'm laughing because that was one of the most difficult things that this group has ever done for many years. They didn't know what to do without their assessments, without their assessment mm -hmm. sheets. They had to go in pairs and one of them would be, be the person would ask the questions and they were nervous as anything. And they didn't know whether they were going to do it right or not. Now, for you and I, Rich, we would go in there and we would we would ask some open questions and we would listen to the answers. They did not know how to do this. And they were worried that some of the things that they would find out were not some of the things on their assessment sheet. So it took two weeks of work before that team were comfortable with being able to go and what we now call have an understand conversation. So I'm highlighting for you that this is not just a changing tactics. This is very deep rooted in the people that actually do the work. So in answer to your question, why is this so difficult? I think this is one example where the way that we do assessments and the culture behind it is about us wanting to find out how that citizen fits into our system. When you have to sit in front of someone and listen to what they have to say, you are behaving in a very different way and you are understanding what's in their world. What are the issues that they face? And the fascinating thing was, is that we were a group of people from the health service. Most of what we heard was nothing to do about health. Right. It was to do about family relationships. It was to do about loneliness, uh, about them getting older and not being able to do things. And actually, it was those things that was affecting the health that we realized we had to start addressing. So if you can imagine 
some of those people in the team. This was a very, very different way of working. So they then came back after two weeks and said, now we know how to do this. How do we document it? Because we've been told that if it's not documented, it doesn't, it hasn't happened. And so here's another cultural block in that we have a belief that we have to document everything. Yeah. So that's another barrier. How do you change the idea that we have this fear that if we don't document something, that we're going to be swallowed into a big hole in the ground. Now, when I work with this team, we found different ways of understanding people and we found different ways of documenting that was far better than how we, than how we did it in the current system and much more appropriate. So all of that takes a significant amount of time and effort to help people get their heads around that. I think two weeks sounds really fast when you said that, when you said it took a long time and two weeks, I was thinking, wow, you guys are really good. Two weeks is like no time at all. But you're, you're into this whole challenge of, you know, we have these demands put upon us from above that we think have been built out of logical and, and experiential reasoning. And, and we, don't, we, we, we seldom take the time to think, is this really the right way of doing things? Because we're afraid that we're going to get slapped or put down or whatever. And, and even if we know it doesn't work, we still are afraid of doing something different. It's rem it, you reminded me, John, of a, a work I did also with a public sector group on the front lines on the, on the phones. Mm. And they had this rule that said, you know, don't tell anyone about benefits unless they ask for them, because if you gave them all away, we'd go bankrupt, right? So only when they asked. And so they were talking to these people who needed the help and they were, the, the rules said, don't say it unless they ask. And, and what happened was the people in great need didn't get the advice. The people who didn't have the need, who knew the system, they all got the advice and then they got, and so they, you know, we tried to do a different thing. We tried to say, well, imagine you were talking to your mother instead. What would you tell her? And so we tried to change this rule. We tried to change the Bible and we did the prototyping. It worked really well. The people on the front lines finally felt like they were like doing what they should be doing. And then someone said, stop, we can't do this. That's, you know because it didn't, it didn't uh, reflect what was coming from above. And I think this idea of this, this we have a great fear of change. So, so you, you, uh, you also gave a great example of you're working with the manager, you're trying to get the managers to change, right? And you had, uh, uh, you were working, here's your, your quote, uh, you were working with public sector department managers, the staff are so stressed that they periodically cry. They feel mm. they have to take work with them home in the evening. Their manager really has no time for us as internal consultants. She's had enough of change in her working life. But we got to know what mattered to her. And just these simple steps have allowed us to move far closer to that manager. And once you helped her, she could relax a little bit from her fears and stress to be able to help the other people around. And, and to me, it's like, so you're, you're talking about the different levels of right, helping the people change the way they work on the ground, but also working with the people who are managing them. And there's a lot of fear at that level too, and, and resistance to change. What, what, what are you finding? Is there a difference in the way you, that you have to work with them than you have to work with kind of your frontline workers in the public sector? Yes, there is a difference. And the way that I work with managers is that I'm helping them 
to deal with what's in their head about what they believe is a good manager in, in, in this current system. So what I do is I will connect them directly to the team that I'm working with. So for instance, in the example that I gave where we're switching from doing assessments to understand conversations, I would connect that manager to that team for that manager to observe and in in one case to actually physically go out. So I would get the manager to go out when someone is doing a traditional assessment. And then I would ask that manager to go out with the team when they're, when they're doing an understanding conversation. And then the manager would come back and we would sit in a room and I would say, what did you see? What did you understand about both situations? And the manager would say, well, that's very interesting. I saw this and I saw that, but they didn't write all these things down and we haven't done assessments and that scares me. So then, mm. so then we start a conversation about, but what's the value in what they're doing? And then tell me manager, why do you think we have to write this all down? And then what they say is, well, we might get sued. We might be taken to court. We might be, we might have to prove what we're doing. And so what I do is I ask them to work with the team over a period of time so that we can see whether the team are doing safe work because that's really what's behind this mm. are the team doing safe work and the other thing that the manager very often thinks is that well if we if we allow the frontline team to do make more decisions themselves maybe they'll spend more money and we haven't got much money so my role as a manager is to keep control of the money and what i show with working with a team is that by from the manager doing that, we actually have higher costs. So when we work with this uh, health team, we did that for over a year, and we proved at the end that their that the resources that they used was fourteen percent less yeah. than the resources they would have done it in the old system. And it was at that point when we showed that to a bunch of senior managers that they realised actually that this team were doing things more efficiently by actually having more ability to make decisions. And I'll never forget this because we finally got the finance director to come to meet the team. And the finance director was very skeptical about releasing control to the front line. And so we got someone from the team to talk to the finance director and say, well, the finance director said, well, how do you ensure that you don't spend too much money? And the person said, and this was a frontline person, person said, what we actually do is we understand that costs have to be controlled. So what we do is we focus on the causes of cost, not the costs. So we make sure that we, we, we spend money when we can see that it's going to add value in the right place. Now, this director had been working for many years in the public sector. She'd never heard anybody say that before. <laughs> she was absolutely bowled over by that statement because she realized from this frontline person that actually it's that approach that we need to have not one of if you need to spend money come to me and you have to write a report which is what we have to do in the old system that's a great story again you know the things you've lifted up here it's amazing that the manager recognizes and articulates what she's afraid of because I, I think that's also something we find in our work is that we have these fears, but people don't really articulate them. They just sit with them. And, and also this idea, again, that you've come up with around, we don't, you know, we don't really trust each other 
to do the right thing. We actually expect people to do the wrong thing, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, the people who are closest to the problem are actually better usually than solving it. But this idea of fear and trust, right? The only way to actually break through that is to engage in these conversations and experience because you'll never convince anyone to do that if they haven't experienced it before. And, and that kind of gets back to this other thing that you wrote, right? Again, that we've talked with Mike Bracken about too, with these design principles, working to a set of principles and putting things behind them rather than these fixed rules, allowing that both uh, flexibility and individual engagement in the problem rather than just having to do work is actually both more efficient and more effective. Well, but it doesn't seem that it would be logical to do that, even if we, even if we kind of conceptually can get it. And so I'm wondering about, do you write, do you help these, uh, these places create these sets of principles to work after? And what's that like? Basically, what I do is I have to develop a working relationship with the managers that I'm working with. And that definitely is based on trust. So as we work together, they trust me and they open up and help me to understand more about what's in their head. So we work on those principles together. So, I'll, so over time, the principles that they have in their head comes out in our conversations. And then what we do is we look at those and we go, but those are based on fear. Mm. Those are based on certain paradigm. So one of the key aspects of new public management is that underlying it is the paradigm of a machine. So if you look at the health service of any country or the public sector, it's all over the place. If you try to draw a diagram of how it worked, you would never achieve that. So one of the ideas of new public management was to create a system that everyone can understand. And that looks like a simple machine. So inputs, processes, outputs, we measure the inputs and the outputs and compare them. And we add resource and the people within the organization are like elements of the machine. If there's something wrong with the machine, we go to the bit place where it's not working right and we oil it, we fix it, we change it. Now that's the paradigm they have in their head. So what we do is we uncover that paradigm and go, hang on a minute, that might work for a machine and that might work for an organization like Amazon, but we've got a complex, very complex system here that's to do with people and how people are. And people are not logical. Machine is logical. People are not logical. The health service does not run on logic, unless of course you're a surgeon and you're doing surgery, then that's logical. But if you look at the whole aspect of health, in a nation or a region or a family, it's much more to do with behaviors than it is to do with logic. So I help them to see that actually complexity is very different to a complicated approach. And when they start to understand that we're dealing with complexity, then they're much more open to asking the question, so if I've got something complex, let's not pretend and treat it like something logical, Let's understand it and treat it like something complex. And that's the beginning of moving towards a new paradigm of working that's much more based on what we've just been talking about, which is trust. We get back to another of the uh, my favorite uh, topics is, right, where 
all of this is based on really the 19, uh, 20th century scientific management approach of, that, that was a result of industrialization, right? Thank you, Frederick Taylor, right? That we, we kind of look at everything as components. It's why we call it human resources, right? As if we're, we're an interchangeable part in a, in a, you know, a line, a manufacturing line. And and that's not really a good use of people, and so it seems to me that we're we have the opportunity now to move into this twenty first century paradigm, where we're embracing both the complexity and the systems and the illogicalness of our humanness to create something actually that's better that we need to create that's better, and yet and yet we're kind of stuck with some of our older structures and systems that are getting in the way. You, you, you write and you talked about this. You don't have the answer to this, but I'm going to bring this up anyway because I think mm -hmm. this is really fun, right? Uh, you, here's a quote from one of your articles. The direct imposition of short-term political decision-making on long-term nature of public service is an ill-matched structure of control or governance. Politics is an emotional and illogical maelstrom of ideology and decision-making, and these characteristics are the opposite of the characteristics required by the structural nature and purpose of the public service sector service, we expect politicians to be able to oversee. So the people who are responsible for this are really incapable of actually making a lot of this change. We need, in some way, a, a different governance structure. But, you, you know, the other thing that you, you've, I think is really interesting, you're describing politics as this emotional, illogical maelstrom of ideology, but they're assuming that no one else is acting that way. <laughs> you wrote that five years ago. You still you still think that? I think when I was look when I was writing that, I was particularly thinking about the United Kingdom. And if you talk about are we logical or not, all you have to do is think about Brexit. And, and I'm I'm not going to go in that direction. But that's a great example of actually everything that you've just said is all mixed up in what happened during Brexit. And if you actually understand that the way politics works, certainly in the United Kingdom, uh, it is based on ideology, not on the reality of what's going on, not on evidence. And I think that's one of the key elements to this is that this isn't about ideology. This is about understanding how the system works. And that is free from ideology. And it's actually based on getting people together to understand how it works. And when you get those people together, they all agree. They all agree ultimately how it works. And the, the solution comes out, it's, it's there. The solution appears in front of us. It's actually not that difficult. If we're able to put aside our beliefs and our ideology, that's what needs to happen. And it's that's that's difficult. It's putting that aside. And, and I have a hope and an idea that in Sweden, politicians, I believe, are more open to doing that than they are in the UK. Well, I don't know about that. I hope you're right, but <laughs> I, I, I like I like this idea of, you know, of engaging in the conversation, which I think there needs to be more of, and how we get people, how we move people out of these fixed positions. Um, also, you know, another thought that has come up is most politicians aren't really well equipped to deal with complex systems or innovation or change in the same way that we've been talking about. It's not really, it, they, haven't, they haven't experienced it in the same way. And so this idea of how do we, you talk about you're having to 
you know, bring your clients along on the on the on the front lines and the managerial positions. Who's helping the politicians get ready for this change? Is another ah, question. Unfortunately, not the right people. And I think that's what you've just expressed is one of the key aspects to this. So with Bertzorg in the Netherlands, for instance, it was it was, I think, just very small prototype, just like you have in every country of about three teams. This is my understanding anyway. And they were just starting to, to make some interesting outcomes. And they a, a government minister happened to hear about this and she wanted to know more. So she was invited for the day to come down and have a look. And that's the key. Mm. She came to experience it. So what happened is that in the morning, she went around with one of the nurses on a bicycle visiting people. And in the afternoon, spent time in the office talking to all the nurses together and understanding how different this was to their traditional way of working. At the end of the day, she went back and she said, I'm now going to make it my mission to make this happen. Wow. Now, to me, that was the turning point that changed this from a small little hidden piece of work to something that has now become, I believe, over 12,000 people are working in this way. That's my understanding. That was the catalyst. That was the point of where the decision maker had that experience. So it didn't take that long. Mm. <laughs> What it needed was someone to put aside their current beliefs and what's needed was someone to come and experience it. So those two things from my uh, experience needs to happen. And that is very difficult to make happen because that's not what currently people expect. People expect a report, they expect research, they expect people to come and stand in front of them and give them a lecture. None of those things I don't think are really going to be very helpful. It never works. We have this idea that we're going to logically convince someone to change, but we know that they have to experience the change before they believe in it. And I, and I think that's kind of the, really the design mindset. And it's, to me, that's like, John, great advice for all of us. If we want to make change, we have to make sure we bring, the, bring people with us, the politicians or the decision makers, because we're never going to convince them with a hundred slide PowerPoint. Just, just not going to work. And so that's kind of the challenge of getting, how do we get these people out of the office to come with us on this visit? They're very, everyone's very busy, right? And I'm, I'm impressed that you got this woman to come and spend time and bicycle around with you guys, because that must have seemed for her like, you know, an, quite a bit of an imposition. Well, unfortunately, that wasn't my piece of work. All I'm doing is explaining <laughs> what actually happened with Bertrand okay. in the Netherlands. And uh, I heard about that, but that's what I try to replicate. And, 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 when I, when I sort of say this, it, it's also easy to say this is about convincing them to come out because at the moment in England anyway, the, the way that politicians and senior decision makers are is that they're very concerned about the increase in demand and the increase in cost. So at the forefront of their mind is how do I reduce cost? How do I reduce demand? So when you come along or I come along and go, oh, come and spend a day with us and we'll help you understand that actually this is a long-term problem and we need to fundamentally change the system. They might go, well, actually, John, yeah, that sounds good, but that's not going to fix the problem I have right now in front of me. Now, this has become increasingly more important over the last few years than, say, 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, what I find in Sweden is that 
Sweden are actually, as a nation, talking and thinking about this before it gets too late. And what becomes attractive to the senior decision makers are the short-term fixes. And when you've got someone in a suit with a PowerPoint slide and say, look, I've got some short-term fixes for your problems, that very often appears to be a lot more attractive. So that's what I'm up against. Yep. I think we're all, we're all up against that. And, uh, Again, we see we see in Sweden at least. You're right. The conversation we have in in Sweden in the public sector, we see a lot more service designers being hired and a lot more investment in innovation. And there's a lot more conversation. There's there's a lot more movement around that. And yet, I spoke with a, a head of a a region, a county, and uh, and we had been talking about innovation. And finally, he said, "We shouldn't be doing innovation." We're just too busy, like delivering the basic. Sir, we can't even deliver the basic services right. The innovation should be on a on a larger scale that that someone can figure help us figure it out and then help us implement it rather than each little group having to be responsible for figuring it out all on their own. We don't have the time. We don't have the money. We don't have the bandwidth. And and in one sense, he's kind of it sounds right, right? We should have a bigger focus on it. On the other hand, it seemed like he was kind of giving up um, on. Uh, on changing things, I'm kind of wondering, what's your take on that? We want we want these small scale tests, and yet it's kind of hard for, especially the poorer counties, to to be willing to engage in this type of change. Mm. The small tests are helpful in a locality, and they can help people to understand what needs to change. But a lot of the small tests that I've seen ultimately ultimately get pushed out by the wider system over time, Mm. especially as you've got senior people that change their position and roles. So some of the work that I've done still is working in the locations. A lot of the work I've done doesn't exist anymore. And it's not because of the effectiveness of the teams that are doing it. So I would wholeheartedly agree with your statement that actually Innovation isn't about having small teams of innovative people. Innovation is actually at the whole system level. Mm. That's where new public management first came in. It was an innovative innovative approach, but we now need an innovative, innovative approach to take us to a different place. And that has to be at a national level. So what we have seen in this country, we've been doing this for decades. And the change is only very small. It, the demand has increased, costs have increased over time. And the small scale innovation has not been able to change that. The new, new public management is what we're looking for here. <laughs> it, 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 I talked with Mike Bracken a couple of weeks ago, head of the, you know, who started the GDS. Really interesting uh, work that, that you did in the UK. Um, he had a his theory was that uh, the public sector is really where innovation and leadership about the future should come from because the private sector is far too focused on shareholder value mm. and yet as we've seen with the new public management many in the public sector say it, we should be fast follower of the private sector run run the government like a business sounds like a little bit of an innovation death loop but this idea of i, I kind of like this idea of of course, the public sector should be leading to innovate because we kind of have a little bit more of space to do that, really, if we think about it. But 
again, we're kind of stuck in this little paradigm that innovation happens in the private sector, not in the public sector. And I'm, I'm wondering, does that, does that match what you're seeing or what you see the opportunity is? It's certainly a characteristic of the difference between the public and private sector, because if you're a private sector organization and you don't move forward, you won't exist anymore and you'll be taken over by other organizations. So that certainly is true. In the public sector, that doesn't happen. What I would say is that one of the big mistakes of new public management was the fact that we copied. We copied something that at the time we thought was good. At the private sector today, we know that that's not the way we do things. And we also know not to copy. So what I would say is in both the public and private sector, innovation is the same. It's about people. It's about getting people together and releasing the boundaries around them and the restrictions around them and allowing them to come up with safe to try experiments. And when you do that, you are innovative. That's in the same in both the public and private sector. So I would say that I would agree with Mike Bracken if we want, if, if he thinks that we should copy. The problem is let's not copy, let's learn from each other and take that learning to each of the organizations and each of the areas that we're working in. And actually there is a lot in the private sector that we can learn from. I work in both. One of the differences in the public sector is that the level of complexity is much higher and we can deal with that. We just deal with that understanding that the complexity is higher. Well, let's design for higher complexity. That's not a problem, but whatever we do, let's not copy, let's learn and develop. Well, that's great advice. And I, 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 again, this idea of the system is actually made of people. People have fears and, and frustrations and, uh, and trust issues. And at the end of the day, we have to deal with those in order to make people comfortable with trying something new. Because if we don't do that, no, nothing ends up changing. Yes. And so I'm wondering, with that in mind, as we kind of wrap up this podcast, what advice would you give to managers or leaders, because they're the ones who make most of the rules right now anyway, would you give to the advice to managers and leaders in the public sector to help them make their change happen a little faster? Oh, goodness. What advice would I give? I think that what I would say is it's not about you. It's not about someone else. It's not about a method. It's not about a technique. It's not about reading an article. It's actually about systemic change. It's actually about understanding how everything works before we move on. If you're able to take the time to think about starting to do that and also understand that all of us have a particular paradigm that we work within. And that paradigm is for everybody is naturally limiting. So what we have to do is connect ourselves with people that think differently. And by doing that, we will start to develop uh, different ways of seeing things and challenging our current approaches. So I would certainly give that advice is not to work within the boundaries, but start to break those boundaries down in terms of our thinking and connect up with others 
that are either already doing that or also wish to do that. Well, John Mortimer, I think that's great advice. And I hope everyone who's listening will take that to heart. And after they get back from their summer vacation, try connecting with people who are different than they are to expand their horizons and, and learning. So thank you. Thank you for, for chatting with me on Innovation Explorers. This was, this was really fun. And uh, I hope you have a great summer. Great. Thank you. It's been, uh, I enjoyed that. Really did. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Innovation Explorers, Hello Futures podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. You've just heard a chat with John Mortimer discussing innovation in the public sector. If you want to chat in person, either in real life or virtually, book a fika with me, as we say in Sweden, anytime. This is Rich Nadwarney from Hello Future. See you next time.